This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Preface And Mary arose in those days, and went into the hill country with haste, into a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zacharias, and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass, that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Luke 1, 39-41 In the first month of the year of our Lord, 1973, the United States Supreme Court handed down a decision Roe v. Wade. It annulled all state laws that prohibited abortion. No Protestant seminary in the United States said a word in protest, as far as I am aware. There were no outraged manifestos. In that year, every one of them that remained silent lost its moral legitimacy. They announced by their silence, quote, In matters of life and death, we have nothing to say. End quote. The humanist world had suspected this for many decades. Later that year, Rusas John Rushduni's Institutes of Biblical Law appeared. Rushduni had for many years pointed to the impotence of the modern church. He had warned his readers in 1970 about the growing pressure within the medical community in favor of abortion. He attacked the abortionists again in August of 1973 with this warning, quote, Moral reform does not mean the ability to recognize evil but the power to do good and to rebuild in terms of righteousness and justice, end quote. But seminaries in 1973 had not yet advanced even to the preliminary stage of recognizing evil. In the year of our Lord, 1991, they still haven't. In 1973, Greg L. Bonson submitted his THM thesis to the faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary, quote, the theonomic responsibility of the civil magistrate, end quote. It was accepted. For 17 years, some members of the faculty remained unhappy with the decision to award him his degree. For over 17 years, they have successfully blocked his appointment as professor of apologetics, despite the fact that he played by the seminary's rules and earned a Ph.D. in philosophy at a secular university. But they never publicly offered a reason. Then, in late October 1990, they finally offered an indirect excuse for this exclusion. Theonomy, a Reformed Critique This symposium can be analyzed from many angles, but one angle surely is this. The book is a dressed-up theological defense of two decisions taken by the seminary a decade earlier. One, not to hire Greg Bonson. Two, to fire Norman Shepard. The seminary has long needed a cover for these two decisions. It has needed a specifically theological justification. Now it has one. The theological justification that the faculty has now adopted is this, a denial that the establishment of Christendom is a valid biblical goal. Bonson and Shepard came far too close to this ancient Christian ideal. Thus, they had to be excluded from Westminster Seminary. They had rejected Westminster's Confession. Motivation. I will say it again. The real motivation behind this book 
was personal as well as theological. It was to provide a retroactive theological justification for the board's hiring and firing policy. When Shepard was fired, every faculty member should have quit in protest. The job market being what it is in the world of seminary education, they did not even threaten to quit. And now they have publicly justified themselves a decade late. Shepard strayed too close to the, to the traditional Calvinistic ideal of Christendom, and he paid the price. The faculty is saying with this book that he deserved to pay that price. But they are unwilling to say this openly, so they have used Bonson as a convenient surrogate. Shepard was a not-quite-theonomist. Not Bonson is the real thing. Furthermore, they really have agreed with the board in its permanent and ongoing decision not to hire Bonson. They do not want him around. They will not, however, as gentlemen academics, simply announce that, quote, Bonson is a personal pain in the neck, a nitpicking, faculty meeting disrupting, know-it-all, who quite frankly is a lot smarter than we are. We don't have to hire him, and we won't. He can take his Ph.D. and stick it in his ear. Nah, nah, nah. End quote. Neither did Reformed Theological Seminary when it refused to rehire him in 1979. The board long ago decided not to come to him with this offer. Quote, Look, Bonson, you are the best mind in apologetics now that Van Til is dead. We don't like you, but the students and the church need you. Therefore, we will make you a deal. Stay out of our faculty meetings and we will pay you a salary comparable to a tenured professor's salary. Cause us any trouble outside of the classroom, and you're gone. Keep your nose clean and your mouth shut outside of the classroom, and you can teach here until you die. End quote. No. They had to publish a book against an entire movement in order to justify themselves. Had they really wanted to attack theonomy as such, the editors would have assigned specific topics to each of the contributors, and each of them would have been told to search through the whole corpus of theonomic literature, examining anything dealing with his assigned area. This body of published material is now in excess of 100 volumes, plus hundreds of newsletters. The editors did not do this. It would have been too much work for everyone concerned. The target would have been much too large. The footnotes in their symposium reveal the underlying motivation of the contributors. Rare is a footnote to anything except Bonson's Theonomy and Christian Ethics, 1977, and occasionally to Volume 1 of Rushduni's Institutes. Thus, the very title of the book is misleading. Do not be fooled by it. It is not Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, that they offer. It is Bonson, why he was not hired here and never will be. They did get the book published, though not by the original company that agreed to do the deed. They have publicly given us 400 pages of secondary theological reasons for their opposition to theonomy. Well, not quite. 400 pages minus the essay by Moises Silva. Undergirding all of their secondary theoretical reasons is the main theological reason. They are no longer willing to defend without qualification Cornelius Van Til's absolute rejection of natural law theory, both ancient and modern. Here is Westminster's dilemma. It had to break publicly with Van Til's philosophy in order to justify its rejection of theonomy. It had to reject his monumental legacy to the church. Yet even now, the faculty has refused to admit openly that most of them have made this break. This is the thesis of my book. The reader will have to judge whether I prove my case. The reader must also understand it in advance 
that I am not particularly interested in refuting Westminster Seminary as such. The school, however, is representative of a particular approach to the question of God's kingdom in history, and for this it deserves attention. Institutionally, it does not. It is just another small, struggling, debt-ridden seminary that cannot make up its collective mind whether it is biblically wrong to kill unborn babies. This is the bottom line on Westminster Seminary. On the side of abortion, it is Laodicea Theological Seminary. Sadly, it is not alone. It is paralyzed by its moral and judicial agnosticism. This agnosticism runs deep. It is the heart and soul of its opposition to both Van Til and Bonson. Its opposition to Bonson is now a matter of public record. Its concomitant opposition to Van Til is concealed. It is my goal in this book to get into the open this concealed opposition to Van Til. Conclusion I shall end this preface with a question for those disciples of Van Til who have faithfully supported Westminster Seminary financially year after year. Here is the question. Was Edmund P. Clowney a disciple of Van Til when he took control of the seminary? If the answer is no, then I propose a second question. Exactly whose disciple was he? You need to know. After all, he restructured the seminary, 1962 to 1981. When you get these two questions answered clearly, you will have a lot of other answers. Until then, save your money. Stop donating to Westminster Seminary. Let those who argue, agree with its new confession support it. Start imposing sanctions. Law without sanctions is not law. Do not subsidize those who teach what you do not believe. If you support it, you are implicitly saying that you really do believe in it. J. Gresham Machen was defrocked in 1936 by a theologically corrupt church for affirming this basic principle and acting in terms of it. It is still worth affirming and acting upon. But the law had also to be given as a regulator of the life of those who were redeemed. It was to the people to whom God had given the promises. It was to the children of Abraham and to no one else in ancient times that the law came. They alone had been graciously redeemed. The law is a part of the covenant of grace. Can the facts prove that the law was not a part of the saving plan of God for man? As part of the saving plan of God, the law was absolutely other than the code of Hammurabi or any other law that expressed tribal experience up to that time. We will not seek to debate about the similarities and dissimilarities between the law that Moses gave and the laws of other nations. We expect a great deal of similarity. We could hold again that even if there had been existing somewhere a code identical in form to the code of Moses, the two would still have been entirely different as to their meaning and interpretation. As a matter of fact, there is no law formulated among the nations outside the pale of Israel that demands absolute obedience of man just as there is nowhere a story that tells man simply that he is the creature of God and wholly responsible to God. Thus the absolute otherness of Moses and Christ's interpretation of the past and of the present can only be cast aside by those who are bound to do so by virtue of their adherence to a metaphysical relativism. Cornelius Van Til The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now 
to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.